Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. Hello, everyone. My name is Kalev Bendor. I'm going to be hosting today, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Matthew Lipman. Good morning, Kalev. And Alan Goldman. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank God. If you can say good in these times. Exactly. <laughs> what is this? Shlomi Kishlom Hamedina. My, uh, yes. I, I'm, I'm basically as good as the country's doing. Yeah. I'm doing as good as the country's That's doing. That's the answer. Okay, as okay can be these days. I think it's sort of like Ben's door is shut here in the safe room, and so like nothing exists outside here for the next half an hour or so. And we're not sure when this is going to go out, but um, a week or two ago, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, gave a speech where he basically was wearing a, a yellow star, as worn by Jews during many Jews during the Holocaust, and he was subsequently criticized. And he put on like a, a striped uniform, no? <laughs> I think Erdan was just wearing a suit. Oh, just, I think Erdan was just wearing a suit. He, he didn't turn up to the UN in a striped pajama. Um, that would have been uh, even more powerful have. imagery, yeah. He should have. Well, you're arguing the other. You're arguing the other. <laughs> I am. Ah, no, you're, no, your I'm argument just, is going to be just, just the yellow star, not good. <laughs> exactly. If you're going to go, 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 <laughs> go the, the whole way. Go the whole way. Um, with go the kind whole of, way. With what, what, like, kind of misfitted shoes with holes in as well, <laughs> kind of the, the whole thing. Go the, clogs. Clogs. Go big or go home. Exactly. Yes. And he was he was criticized by Danny Dayan, who who runs who runs Yad Vashem, the Holocaust uh, Holocaust Museum. And I think what, what's interesting in in the Israeli psyche or even the Israeli general public debate is is we actually talk about Holocaust quite a lot during disengagement. There was um also generally got a lot of criticism, but uh, a bunch of kids were, I guess it was, it was orange stars, I think they were wearing. And even during COVID, Matthew reminded us earlier, there were, there were Haredi children who were wearing stars. And, and generally this idea of bringing the Holocaust or the Nazis into public debate, in many ways, is, is actually quite common. Often if there's just a politician who we, we think is kind of a bit extreme, we say Nazi, all sorts of things. But generally, also when it's when it's brought into the public sphere, it is it is roundly criticised. The question we're going to look at today is whether October the seventh, um, in many ways, is more relevant or useful or helpful for us to be using Nazi analogy over whether that is in the way that the victims. Um, hid, you know, there's there's terrible stories about people surviving by hiding in attics as kind of gunmen came or hiding under, children hiding under dead parents, parents trying to protect their children by, you know, or pretending to be dead, all, all sorts of things that bring many people's memories back to those times. Uh, is it helpful? Is it useful? Is it appropriate? Is it relevant? Whether in understanding what was or in understanding what needs to happen now, so that's going to be our our discussion today. Um, we're going to start with uh, Matthew, and then uh, who's going to make um, some some initial comments, and then Alan's going to respond. So Matthew, please. Okay, I, I'll preface this by saying it, it's it's an interesting conversation to be having with Alan because Alan is our resident uh, Holocaust expert. Um, and although I've studied the Holocaust and know a fair bit about it, I would not classify myself anywhere near 
on the level of, of Alan. So I'm sure he's going to bring us lots of interesting insights as we he, go along. He's going to smash you, basically, <laughs> but, you know. But that's fine. We're, we're here to learn from each other. To so educate. That's... It's going to be an educational uh, roller coaster. I am, Don't build up expectations. You'll be smashed. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here to, to learn from, from the master. But um, when I was thinking about this question, when this was a question that we, we were considering, like how appropriate, how suitable is it? Is it relevant to be using... Um, sort of Nazi imagery, Holocaust imagery, the ideas, the stories, all these sorts of things. Um, I was taken back to an article I read a couple of weeks ago by Dr. Micha Goodman, who is a commentator, I guess, on like Israeli society and on Jewish well, history. Public intellectual, we call them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, that's the, uh, the fancy word for it. Yeah. Um, pretentious word for it, I guess. And, um, <laughs> and Dr. Goodman, he wrote what I, what I found to be a very interesting article um, and he talked about the different generations of Israelis. And he was talking about the founding generation of the state, you know, people like Ben-Gurion, etc., and saying they had experienced what it was like to live in a world without the state of Israel. They understood what it was. They'd lived in a, state, a world without the state of Israel, and they created the state, and then they had a state. And he said, a generation like our generation, he called us the fourth generation, we do not know what it's like to live without a Jewish state. We were all born when the state already existed. We've all grown up in a in a time when the state was there. Maybe many of us took it for granted even that there was a state of Israel. But he said that on that one day, on October 7th, in that area of the country, he said the state of Israel ceased to exist. And that for him, it was like that the fifth generation, the generation before the first generation, the people who had never had a state, it was like they were like waving to us, and in, in, waving is maybe not the right word, but like saying to us, this is what it's like. Now you understand what it's like to have no state, no state, an army that doesn't protect you, because we're hearing these terrible stories about how the army couldn't get to it, to where they were supposed to do to protect the people, people hiding, in, and Alan's going to talk about it, hiding in safe rooms, hiding in attics, hiding under dead bodies for eight hours at a time um, until someone came to rescue them. And Dr. Goodman says the state didn't exist. And that was an experience which the Jews during the Holocaust had, right? They didn't know what it was like to have a Jewish state. They had nowhere to go. They had no refuge. And at that, for those people who were in, living in Otevaza and, and slightly beyond, they had no state. They had no one to protect them. They had no one to take care of them. They had no one that was able to stick up for them so in, and defend them. So in that sense, I would say that the Holocaust idea works. If you take that idea of Dr. Goodman's that it was not doing what it was supposed to do, it did not exist for a day, then yeah, you can really say that actually we had that experience and therefore um, to use that idea of comparing it to the Holocaust works. Now, of course, the idea, there are many differences and, and I, I wouldn't even begin to put them in the same place. But for that period, that one day, yeah, I think it, it, it did work. Um, does that justify Gilad Erdan wearing a yellow star to the, to the UN? I don't think it does. On that sense, in, in terms of making uh, in making a comparison, I don't think the comparison works. If you argue that Gilad Erdan's job is to represent Israel and to make sure that Israel's agenda is promoted, and by using that shock value that he was doing the right thing, there's a different argument to be made there. But in terms of saying that the, the state of Israel ceased to exist for that one day in that eight-hour period in that area, then yeah, I think it works. And, and I'm sorry to say that it works, um, but yeah. Thank you, Matthew. I'll, I'll just say that Gilad Erdan's predecessor at the UN was Danny Danon, 
And it's very lucky that it wasn't Danny Danon because then we say Danny Danon did this and he was criticized by Danny Diane. So we're even we're, Erdan and Diane is confused. So, so, so we're grateful, at least in this podcast, that it was Gilad Erdan, not Danny Danon. Um, Alan. Uh, so I, there's a lot there. I'm not, I, I don't really want to focus on the act in the UN because I think Yad Vashem had a good response to it. And I think cheap tricks in general especially when they're associated with uh, with the Holocaust, um, are particularly problematic. Um, but I, I, I will say I think that that approach that Matt brought in the name of Micha Goodman, I didn't see the article, but is um, just completely wrong. <laughs> just put it out there uh, in the sense of uh, that, that, first of all, the state did exist. And a failed, a failed moment in a state uh, and failing to protect its uh, citizens and all of those things that um, we all know happened doesn't make the state non-existent. It makes the state culpable um, for uh, for those mistakes and for the terrible death that happened. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't mean the state stops existing. And I think um, we can look at it on many different levels. So uh, in and the the most I think clear problem with it is that the job of the educator, and I think this is. Uh, a, a creed we live by at, as Masa educators is that we're supposed to be clarifying issues for our students. Um, and using the Holocaust as an analogy, certainly in that, in that perspective, is not clarifying. And I think because what you're so what what it's focusing on, and if we we can look at the there's obviously the Holocaust is a very deep subject, like any historical event, and has all different sides to it. So I'm just gonna sort of divided into two for right now, and not to say these are two exclusively, but the two. And the two are the victim and the perpetrators. So what Micha Goodman is saying is that the victim's experience was the experience of the Shah for a day, right? Um, and I just, I think that that is so um, uh, mistaken, even if some of the images are similar. Why is that mistaken? So just look, when people when people were in trouble, they had a police force to call. They had an army. They had friends. They delayed. They messed up. They didn't do it right. There's all these different problems that happened, but they had someone to call, right? In the Shoah for whatever, however many years you were in, whether you were in Hungary and it was for, you know, that amount of time or Poland for six years or you were a German citizen, the whole point was that once the Germans came in, they removed your citizenship, they removed your rights to any kind of protection from your government. That is a very different experience, and that is not ex- at all what happened. What happened here, and also the 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 the, the victim themselves. You say the help didn't come in the Shoah. They didn't say the help didn't come. They no said help. the world was no help. There was nobody helping us. The world doesn't care. The world doesn't care. And yes, I know. I'm not saying that the the terrible experience of a family being brutally murdered in their home um, by by Hamas is a is a is an awful you know awful experience that we have, of course can't imagine and their subjective experience of their fear at the time and the moments is is terrible um, it just shouldn't be compared to the Holocaust uh, and and if we look so that's on the vic on the victim side why I don't think it's at all at all parallel uh, I guess one more thing that comes Tahal was there 
they were just not effective <laughs> in what was happening, right? I mean, and and not only Tzal, it's not only the army. You had the 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 first responders groups. You had all kinds of people. You had people who weren't even in the army who just went down to help. Many right? of many of whom, including the army, who fought very bravely and courageously and valiantly lost their lives right? trying Pe- to help people, people called friends and they those friends came with guns to protect them I mean, one incredible story I had and this is the story that really and I wish I remembered the name I have to go back and look at it. a woman I saw I think it was either from Far Aza or Barry and they were in their safe room and for some reason door got open whatever all the details but her husband gets shot she takes her husband's gun because her husband had a gun but he, he got shot she takes her husband's gun and starts fending off the uh, uh, Hamas with her husband's gun. That's a very different experience. And what happens is her husband's bleeding to death, unfortunately, on the on the floor. She's holding the the blood in. Hamas lights the house on fire. Now there's smoke. She has to make a decision. So in the Holocaust, we talk about choiceless choices, right? Those choices that have no good ramifications. And her choice is she has to either open the window to, to so they get air to breathe. And that means letting go of the bleeder in her husband's uh, in her husband's midsection, which means he's going to bleed out, or keep holding on to that and and the fear that the children will suffocate and she'll suffocate. She makes the choice, and her husband and her, her husband says goodbye to her. But with her husband, they make the choice, and he he doesn't survive. But she opens the window, the air comes, and then they are actually uh, people come to rescue them and pull them out. That uh, horrible, horrible choiceless choices, and we can't. I, I, I you know, I'm not. Uh, we can't. We can't judge, you know, that personal experience that people are having, but I, th- I do feel instinctively that's a very different experience than that's happening in the Shoah. Um, and I, I think that that has to be clear. I think where we can compare, actually, where I will say we compare, is actually to the perpetrators. I think that some of the language we use for the Shoah is very, is very helpful. And that perpetrator is actually not only in the Shoah. If you look at the people who are trying to struggle with the brutality um, and the the terribleness and the and the violence and the the truth is it's not that's not just a Shoah event. If you look at the if you look at accounts from the Armenian Armenian genocide or the Bosnian genocide or or Rwanda, you see that same brutality. You see same violence. That that is unfortunately a characteristic of of genocide. And genocidal violence and brutality, um, where uh, so that so in terms of other of putting it in the perspective of genocidal acts, not just the Holocaust. I think we can see the perpetrators in that sense. Where we can maybe use a Holocaust analogy is the anti-Semitism. There are different approaches to what was the anti-Semitism, the fine, uh, like what how you understand it. And the one I find most um, helpful is Saul Friedlander's approach, which he calls eliminationist anti-Semitism, where the destruction of the Jews and the Jewish people, certainly in Europe, became a source of a redemptive anti-Semitism. Redemptive anti-Semitism is that, that they will be redeemed, the Germans will be redeemed through the destruction of the Jewish people in Europe. And I think we see that in Hamas, that the, at least the destruction of the Jews in Israel will be is, is the redemption of, of Hamas and the Palestinian people from the Hamas's perspective and i'm not even sure sorry <laughs> no I'm not even sure what what what, what to ask on that i yeah. i would just add that um and again we you know we we we, def- we defer to alan on on holocaust things but it's so redemptive for the for the nazis that even when they're losing the war they are prioritizing killing jews and we well, yes, yes yes okay okay yes um, we'll say, yeah, and we'll say. 
we don't know how this war with Hamas is going to end, but it could well be that, you know, Hamas's actions on October 7th basically bring either the end of it as a military entity or the significant weakening. But it's, in inverted commas, it's, it's worth it because it's, it's a religious act to, to kill Jews. I'm just, I, I'm just, maybe I'll ask both of you because, um, you know, the idea of Jews being um, powerless is not just a, and, and no help coming. Like, it's not just, we can't rely on, we can't rely on the Tsar and we can't rely on, we can't rely on the Pope and we can't rely on anyone historically. So I'm just wondering where, where you feel, you know, if it's not a Holocaust analogy in some ways, it's any of the other analogies are, would any other non-sovereign analogy work? Or are you actually arguing that now, the fact that we've now got a state of Israel inherently means we are in a a new place and everything before is not useful or or, or relevant. That's that's one question I'm happy for either of you to take. And the second thing is, is that I think the Israeli government have been using in, in some ways two analogies. One is this is like the Nazis, the second one, this is like ISIS. Uh because what what comes from that is we need to completely destroy this entity and the international community should give us the time and the patience because both ISIS and the Nazis are evil. Um, and so I just, I'd be interested to hear your opinions and thoughts on that analogy for kind of the, Alan was kind of, you, you, you were looking historically at it, but looking forwards to what extent does that work? So both of you feel free to take those questions or comments in whichever way you'd like, in whichever order you would like. Um, okay, so I think the point that you raised, Alan, about being there to clarify for us students is is of crucial importance. Um, and yes, issues can get com confusing. Um, one of the things I did after this happened with the United Nations was I asked my students, I brought it straight to them, explained to them what happened. So what do you guys think? And we had this conversation. It was in each class, it was excellent. Like the, the students really engaged with the topic, trying to hash out and flesh out the issues involved and why it was appropriate. Of the yellow star by the yeah. ambassador. And, and interestingly, by the end, almost every student agreed that they were completely different situations and he shouldn't have, have done it, which, was, which I found interesting that they got there themselves with that. Um, in terms of this ISIS uh, analogy, just to come back to another article I read, not by Micha Goodman, but by... Uh, a former, I can't remember who it was, but it was a former... A former uh, public intellectual. No, it was a former advi security advisor to, to Netanyahu, actually. And he was bringing that example of what the um, of what the Americans had done, basically. Was it called Raqqa? That's what, in, in in, or Mosul. Yeah, one of them. Raqqa's in Syria, Mosul's in, in Iraq, northern Iraq. Iraq. And basically trying to say that what they did was they made the land or the, the city basically uninhabitable and said that's what Israel has to do here. Now... I'm not agreeing with him or disagreeing with him, but the fact that the ISIS analogy is being used partly in that way and saying, okay, we have to, this is a war of destruction. We have to destroy Hamas. And if you say ISIS is Hamas, and therefore what you guys did in America when you destroyed their their dwelling places, well, you can't be critical of us for doing it. And it, what was it last week or two weeks ago? The Americans even sent some of their, their generals who'd been responsible for this to come and consult with the Israeli government and to consult with the IDF on it. Um, so is that a helpful analogy? It's, it could be helpful for Israel to buy the time and patience that they need in order to 
fight against Hamas in the way they want to? Um, is it something that's helpful for us to understand what's going on? In, in, in terms of like the brutality that you were talking about and, and, and the way that people treat each other, I, I think it's so beyond the realms of recognition. Sure, we can bring parallels if we want to, but please God, we would never know, right? Like Shalana Dada, the, 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 some of the, this harrowing stories that we're reading. Um, so in that sense, I'm not sure how helpful it is, but if it's helpful to get political currency and, and to be used then, then sure, then makes sense. So I would say uh, I do think Israel is a a whatever you want to watershed paradigm shift in Jewish history of the last two thousand years, and these ideas of the Holocaust that's why, why that's why they're problematic to to use them. And I would also say pogroms. Dana Horn wrote a, a very good. I mean, she's so good articulate. But she was talking about how the vigils and things after the um after October 7th reminded her of a lot of the Yiddish literature of the 1920s after the but I again I I think it's completely different it's a break Israel is a break and therefore those things don't they don't match they just don't match and they 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 I understand the trauma right we're, we're all of the Jewish people are somewhat post-traumatic from from the from 2000 years of being you know, othered or living in insecure places at times and what have you. But I, I don't, I think that that's what's changed, that we don't have to have that. Our insecurity is different now. Um, and I think that that is a very important point. Um, the As as far as now, so then what about comparing it to modern political struggles? That's what you're saying, essentially, right? By using the ISIS, Daesh, or whatever, right, Daesh, those things, right? We're talking about, okay, so does that fit in modern political struggles with with radical Islam? So maybe if you're looking at it from the place of Islam and sort of radical Islamism, I don't, I don't know what the right exactly term we'd like to use is these days, but those who are pushing for a, uh, a complete um, um, extreme caliphate that gets rid of all the infidels, that that is um so so that's a, that's what the the argument is is that Hamas is like ISIS because they pushed that ideology which is you know born in the modern political struggle of the Muslim Brotherhood in in Egypt. The problem with that, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I, it's not necessarily wrong, but the problem with that, where it is problematic, is that we do have a territorial struggle that's been going on for a long time with with Palestinians, which which Hamas represents. Um, which is very different than what I think was happening in Syria and Iraq and with ISIS in those years. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, the, the Hamas is a quasi-government controlling an area of territory. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say legitimately, but certainly um, consistently for the last... Um, close to 20 years. And also ISIS, of course, is more like an ideology. As you say, Israel has a shared border with, Israel has a shared border with, with Hamas in, in Gaza, which wasn't the case with the Americans, for example, in, in Iraq or, or in Syria. Right, but, but the Americans were, were there to support the yeah. locals in their yeah. fight, right? So that's, the, you know. But that's but, mixing in domestic politics as opposed to, or yeah. somebody else's domestic politics as right. opposed to your own border defense. Yeah. So I think that that maybe understand again maybe understanding that side of radical Islam can be helpful to understand who who are who the enemy is and what they're trying to do to us. Um, but I'm not so right. Who's going to take over Gaza after is a big question. 
You know what? It would be a great topic you know? for a podcast. That would be a great topic maybe for a podcast. We, maybe we should record um, one like that. You know, maybe it will even be published before this one. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe we should go back and listen to it or go forward, right? Exactly. Um, if you haven't listened to that yet, either go back or just wait a week or two. Right. Well, there, there was kind of the, 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 the idea with taking out ISIS is that the locals who really did not want them would then come be, be able to live their lives and take over and do that. We don't have that in Gaza necessarily. Right. We don't really know. So as a, maybe as an ideological, I don't know if I guess, I guess the analogy you know is saying? how do I try and, how do I try and describe evil? Mm. So there is a historic mm. evil, which mm. is the Nazis, and there is a modern evil, which is ISIS. And that, those are kind of, I guess, shortcuts for um, both evil and things that need to be destroyed. Yeah. But in any event, Thank you very, very much for both of your opinions. I think it was a really fascinating discussion. And um, we hope all the listeners enjoyed. And we look forward to joining you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Massah fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel in all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. The connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.